Chapter Two of Book One of Toilers of the Sea, Part Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Adams. Toilers of the Sea, Part Three. Deruchette by Victor Hugo, translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book One: Night and the Moon. Chapter Two: The Harbour Bell Again. Gilliatt, in fact, after a passage without accident, but somewhat slow on account of the heavy burden of the sloop, had arrived at Saint-Samson after dark, and nearer ten than nine o'clock. He had calculated the time. The half-flood had arrived. There was plenty of water, and the moon was shining, so that he was able to enter the port. The little harbour was silent. A few vessels were moored there, with their sails brailed up to the yards, their tops over, and without lanterns. At the far end a few others were visible, high and dry in the careenage, where they were undergoing repairs. Large hulls dismasted and stripped, with their planking open at various parts, lifting high the ends of their timbers, and looking like huge dead beetles lying on their backs with their legs in the air. As soon as he had cleared the harbour mouth, Gilliatt examined the port and the quay. There was no light to be seen, either at the Braves or elsewhere. The place was deserted, save perhaps by someone going to or returning from the parsonage house. Nor was it possible to be sure even of this, for the night blurred every outline, and the moonlight always gives to objects a vague appearance the distance added to the indistinctness. The parsonage house at that period was situated on the other side of the harbour, where there stands at the present day an open mast-house. Gilliatt had approached the Braves quietly, and had made the sloop fast to the ring of the Gironde, under Mess Lethierry's window. He leaped over the bulwarks and was ashore. Leaving the sloop behind him by the quay, he turned the angle of the house, passed along a little narrow street, then along another, did not even notice the pathway which branched off leading to the Rue de la Rue, and in a few minutes found himself at that corner of the wall, where there were wild mallows with pink flowers in June, with holly, ivy, and nettles. Many a time concealed behind the bushes, seated on a stone, in the summer days, he had watched here through long hours, even for whole months, often tempted to climb the wall over which he contemplated the garden of the Brave, and the two windows of a little room seen through the branches of the trees. The stone was there still, the bushes, the low wall, the angle, as quiet and dark as ever like an animal returning to its hole gliding rather than walking he made his way in once seated there he made no movement he looked around saw again the garden the pathways the beds of flowers the house the two windows of the chamber the moonlight fell upon this dream he felt it horrible to be compelled to breathe and did what he could to prevent it he seemed to be gazing on a vision of paradise, and was afraid that all would vanish. It was almost impossible that all these things could be really before his eyes, and if they were, it could only be with that imminent danger of melting into air which belongs to things divine. A breath, and all must be dissipated. He trembled with the thought. 
before him not far off at the side of one of the alleys in the garden was a wooden seat painted green the reader will remember this seat gilliatt looked up at the two windows he thought of the slumber of some one possibly in that room behind that wall she was no doubt sleeping he wished himself elsewhere yet would sooner have died than go away he thought of a gentle breathing moving a woman's breast it was she that vision that purity in the clouds that form haunting him by day and night she was there he thought of her so far removed and yet so near as to be almost within reach of his delight he thought of that impossible ideal drooping in slumber and like himself too visited by visions of that being so long desired so distant so impalpable her closed eyelids her face resting on her hand of the mystery of sleep in its relations with that pure spirit of what dreams might come to one who was herself a dream he dared not think beyond and yet he did he ventured on those familiarities which the fancy may indulge in the notion of how much was feminine in that angelic being disturbed his thoughts the darkness of night emboldens timid imaginations to take these furtive glances he was vexed within himself feeling on reflection as if it were profanity to think of her so boldly yet still constrained in spite of himself he tremblingly gazed into the invisible he shuddered almost with a sense of pain as he imagined her room a petticoat on a chair a mantle fallen on the carpet a band unbuckled a handkerchief he imagined her corset with its lace hanging to the ground her stockings her boots his soul was among the stars the stars are made for the human heart of a poor man like Gilliatt, not less than for that of the rich and great. There is a certain degree of passion by which every man becomes wrapped in a celestial light. With a rough and primitive nature, this truth is even more applicable. An uncultivated mind is easily touched with dreams." delight is a fullness which overflows like any other to see those windows was almost too much happiness for gilliatt suddenly he looked and saw her from the branches of a clump of bushes already thickened by the spring there issued with a spectral slowness a celestial figure a dress a divine face almost a shining light beneath the moon Gilliatt felt his powers failing him. It was Déruchette. Déruchette approached. She stopped. She walked back a few paces, stopped again, then returned and sat upon the wooden bench. The moon was in the trees. A few clouds floated among the pale stars. The sea murmured to the shadows in an undertone. The town was sleeping. A thin haze was rising from the horizon. The melancholy was profound déruchette inclined her head with those thoughtful eyes which look attentive yet see nothing she was seated sideways and had nothing on her head but a little cap untied which showed upon her delicate neck the commencement of her hair 
She twirled mechanically a ribbon of her cap around one of her fingers. The half-light showed the outline of her hands, like those of a statue. Her dress was of one of those shades which by night looked white. The trees stirred as if they felt the enchantment which she shed around her. The tip of one of her feet was visible. Her lower eyelids had that vague contraction which suggests a tear checked in its course, or a thought suppressed. There was a charming indecision in the movements of her arms, which had no support to lean on. A sort of floating mingled with every posture. It was rather a gleam than a light, rather a grace than a goddess. The folds of her dress were exquisite. Her face, which might inspire adoration, seemed meditative, like portraits of the Virgin. It was terrible to think how near she was. Gilliatt could hear her breathe. A nightingale was singing in the distance. The stirring of the wind among the branches set in movement the inexpressible silence of the night. Déruchette, beautiful, divine, appeared in the twilight like a creation from those rays and from the perfumes in the air. That widespread enchantment seemed to concentre and embody itself mysteriously in her. She became its living manifestation. She seemed the outblossoming of all that shadow and silence. But the shadow and silence which floated lightly about her weighed heavily on Gilliatt. He was bewildered. What he experienced is not to be told in words. Emotion is always new, and the word is always enough. Hence the impossibility of expressing it. Joy is sometimes overwhelming. To see Déruchette, to see herself, to see her dress, her cap, her ribbon, which she twined around her finger, was it possible to imagine it? Was it possible to be thus near her, to hear her breathe? She breathed. Then the stars might breathe also. Gilliatt felt a thrill through him. He was the most miserable, and yet the happiest of men. He knew not what to do. His delirious joy at seeing her annihilated him. Was it indeed Déruchette there, and he so near? His thoughts, bewildered and yet fixed, were fascinated by that figure as by a dazzling jewel. He gazed upon her neck, her hair. He did not even say to himself that all that would now belong to him, that before long, to-morrow perhaps, he would have the right to take off that cap, to unknot that ribbon. He would not have conceived for a moment the audacity of thinking even so far. Touching in idea is almost like touching with the hand. Love was with Gilliatt like honey to the bear. He thought confusedly. He knew not what possessed him. The nightingale still sang. He felt as if about to breathe his life out. The idea of rising, of jumping over the wall, of speaking to Déruchette, never came into his mind. If it had, he would have turned and fled. If anything resembling a thought had begun to dawn in his mind, it was this, that Déruchette was there, that he wanted nothing more, and that eternity had begun. A noise aroused them both, her from her reverie, him from his ecstasy. Someone was walking in the garden. It was not possible to see who was approaching on account of the trees. It was the footstep of a man. 
Déruchette raised her eyes. The steps drew nearer, then ceased. The person walking had stopped. He must have been quite near. The path beside which was the bench wound between two clumps of trees. The stranger was there in the alley between the trees, at a few paces from the seat. Accident had so placed the branches that Déruchette could see the newcomer, while Gilliatt could not. The moon cast on the ground beyond the trees a shadow which reached to the garden seat. Gilliatt could see this shadow. He looked at Déruchette. She was quite pale. Her mouth was partly open, as with a suppressed cry of surprise. She had just half risen from the bench, and sunk again upon it. There was in her attitude a mixture of fascination, with a desire to fly. Her surprise was enchantment, mingled with timidity. She had upon her lips almost the light of a smile, with the fullness of tears in her eyes. She seemed as if transfigured by that presence, as if the being whom she she saw before her belonged not to this earth. The reflection of an angel was in her look. The stranger, who was to Gilliatt only a shadow, spoke. A voice issued from the trees, softer than the voice of a woman, yet it was the voice of a man. Gilliatt heard these words. "'I see you, mademoiselle, every Sunday and every Thursday. They tell me that once you used not to come so often. It is a remark that has been made.' I ask your pardon. I have never spoken to you. It was my duty, but I come to speak to you to-day, for it is still my duty. It is right that I speak to you first. The cashmere sails to-morrow. This is why I have come. You walk every evening in your garden. It would be wrong of me to know your habits so well, if I had not the thought that I have. Mademoiselle, you are poor. Since this morning I am rich. Will you have me for your husband?' Déruchette joined her two hands in a suppliant attitude, and looked at the speaker, silent, with fixed eyes, and trembling from head to foot. The voice continued, "'I love you. God made not the heart of man to be silent. He has promised him eternity, with the intention that he should not be alone. There is for me but one woman upon earth. It is you.' I think of you as of a prayer. My faith is in God, and my hope in you. What wings I have, you bear. You are my life, and already my supreme happiness. Sir, said Déruchette, there is no one to answer in the house. The voice rose again. Yes, I have encouraged that dream. Heaven has not forbidden us to dream. You are like a glory in my eyes. I love you deeply, mademoiselle. To me you are holy innocence. I know it is the hour at which your household have retired to rest, but I had no choice of any other moment. Do you remember that passage of the Bible which someone read before us? It was the twenty-fifth chapter of Genesis. I have thoughts of it often since. Monsieur Herod said to me, You must have a rich wife. I replied, No, I must have a poor wife. I speak to you, mademoiselle, without venturing to approach you. I would step even further back if it was your wish that my shadow should not touch your feet. You alone are supreme. You will come to me if such is your will. I love and wait. You are the living form of a benediction. I did not know, sir, stammered Déruchette, that any one remarked me on Sundays and Thursdays. The voice continued. 
we are powerless against celestial things the whole law is love marriage is canaan you are to me the promised land of beauty Derichet replied i did not think i did wrong any more than other persons who are strict the voice continued god manifests his will in the flowers in the light of dawn in the spring and love is of his ordaining you are beautiful in this holy shadow of night this garden has been tended by you in its perfumes there is something of your breath the affinities of our souls do not depend on us they cannot be counted with our sins you were there that was all i was there that was all i did nothing but feel that i loved you sometimes my eyes rested upon you i was wrong but what could i do it was through looking at you that all happened i could not restrain my gaze there are mysterious impulses which are above our search the heart is the chief of all temples to have your spirit in my house this is the terrestrial paradise for which i hope say will you be mine as long as i was poor i spoke not i know your age you are twenty-one i am twenty-six i go to-morrow if you refuse me i return no more oh be my betrothed will you not more than once have my eyes in spite of myself addressed to you that question i love you answer me i will speak to your uncle as soon as he is able to receive me but i turn first to you to rebecca i plead for rebecca unless you love me not Deruchette hung her head and murmured oh i worship him the words were spoken in a voice so low that only gilliatt heard them she remained with her head lowered as if by shading her face she hoped to conceal her thoughts there was a pause no leaf among the trees was stirred it was that solemn and peaceful moment when the slumber of external things mingles with the sleep of living creatures and night seems to listen to the beating of nature's heart in the midst of that retirement like a harmony making the silence more complete rose the wide murmur of the sea the voice was heard again mademoiselle Deruchette started. Again the voice spoke. "'You are silent. What would you have me say? I wait for your reply.' "'God has heard it,' said Deruchette. Then the voice became almost sonorous, and at the same time softer than before, and these words issued from the leaves as from a burning bush. "'You are my betrothed. Come then to me. Let the blue sky, with all its stars, be witness of this taking of my soul to thine, and let our first embrace be mingled with that firmament.' Deruchette arose and remained an instant motionless, looking straight before her, doubtless in another's eyes. Then, with slow steps, with head erect, her arms drooping, but with the fingers of her hands wide apart, like one who leans on some unseen support, she advanced towards the trees, and was out of sight. A moment afterwards, instead of the one shadow upon the gravelled walk, there were two. They mingled together. Gilliatt saw at his feet the embrace of those two shadows in certain moments of crisis time flows from us as his sands from the hour-glass and we have no feeling of his flight 
that pair on the one hand who were ignorant of the presence of a witness and saw him not on the other that witness of their joy who could not see them but who knew of their presence how many minutes did they remain thus in that mysterious suspension of themselves it would be impossible to say suddenly a noise burst forth at a distance a voice was heard crying help and the harbour bell began to sound it is probable that in those celestial transports of delight they heard no echo of that tumult the bell continued to ring any one who had sought gilliatt then in the angle of the wall would have found him no longer there end of chapter two of book one Recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com.